Scripture reading this evening is taken out of the book of Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Back in my home church in Kalamazoo, we had just recently concluded treating the loosing of the seals of a book that symbolizes God's eternal counsel. The text that we consider in chapter 6 would be the final verses of the chapter, verses 12 through 17, where it's recorded the first vision of the loosing of the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, reading beginning at verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering, and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that there should, they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him, had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him, was death, and hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And when they had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Then what follows is the text for the sermon this evening. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, 
and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Thus far we read from God's holy inspired word. May he bless the reading of his word. Judgment, impending, divine, and final judgment. Beloved congregation, do we live in the consciousness and reality of this coming final judgment? The Word of God before us this evening is a powerful reminder of the sure and certain arrival of that day of judgment. For it sets forth the great catastrophic end of this world and all things in it as we know it today. An end that announces the great wrath of God against the sins of mankind, impenitent, sinful mankind, who has allied himself with the devil and who has by that time filled the cup of iniquity to the brim and in so doing makes itself ripe for judgment. And that, of course, brings about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. The text that we consider this evening introduces the loosing of the sixth seal, and in so doing sets forth the long-expected day of the return of Jesus Christ. What a day that will be! A day of great and unspeakable joy for all who love Him, for all who are the called according to His purpose. That day will bring about the climax of their comfort and the perfection of their salvation. But on the other hand, what a terrible day it will be for sinful, impenitent mankind who has by that time taken the lives of the final martyrs of the Christian faith. For you see, beloved, the text is a logical progression of the loosing of the fifth seal because it is God's answer to the cry and prayer of those souls under the altar who were slain on account of the witness that they gave concerning God's word. What a terrifying picture the Holy Spirit paints of the reality of that great day of wrath. Its dread and its terror is captured well by the entire order of creation crashing 
and falling apart, and even more by all of sinful, impenitent mankind on that day being in utter dread and terror as never before. They know their guilt. They know that they deserve what is coming and they know what is coming their way. The picture is gripping and striking and the judgment upon sinful mankind who is clearly allied with the devil just as plain and striking. For did you notice the number 666 in the text? This is the loosing of the sixth seal affecting the entire order of creation described comprehensively in a sixfold way and bringing real terror upon all of sinful mankind categorized comprehensively by six classes of man. Six, six, six. And six is the number of the beast. See Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. In that day, sinful, impenitent man who knows that they are all so guilty and who will need no Bible interpretation class to know from all that they see around them on that day, that final, irreversible, and perfectly righteous judgment is coming their way. What about us? Are you and am I ready for that day? May the Holy Spirit prepare our hearts and the hearts of our children more and more for that day as we consider this word under the theme, the great day of wrath. Notice with me three things, terrible signs, terrible wrath, terrible cry. We begin with the terrible signs of the great day of wrath, and there are six of them all together. Now, broadly, we ask the question, what do we make of all six signs? The great earthquake, the sun becoming black as sackcloth of hair, the moon becoming as blood, the stars falling to the earth from out of their orbit, the heavens departing as a scroll, and the mountains and the islands dislodged and moved out of their original location. What do we make of all these signs? Shall we take them to be all symbolic, or shall we take them literally? Now, to be sure, while the book of Revelation is a book that's heavy on symbols and symbolism, it is clear that when you have all these things taken together, the earthquake, the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the islands, and so on, 
It only makes sense to take all these things literally. If we were to take a symbolic approach to all these things, we'll only end up with nonsense, as some have. Some, of course, take the sun in the text to be a great ruler of the earth who has lost his power, and accordingly, some take the moon then to be a lesser ruler of a lesser power, also losing his power. But you see, if we were to do that, how will we know who exactly are these persons? And then from there, what do we do with the stars, the fig tree, and all the rest that's in the text? So you see, beloved, it is not surprising that among those who have taken a symbolic and figurative approach to the text, that some have also ended up denying the real, visible, literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ from the clouds of heaven. These terrible signs throughout the earth are to be taken literally. They speak of a great shaking up of the entire universe. They speak of it in a six-fold way, and now it's in order for us to consider these signs, these six signs, so ever so concisely. First, there is the sign of the great earthquake. It's a powerful, powerful earthquake, an extensive earthquake, and given the lateness of this earthquake in history, this could well be the greatest earthquake there is. That's the great earthquake to begin with. Then secondly, we are told that the sun will become black as sackcloth of hair. That is, the sun literally losing its light and heat. And then comes the moon. The moon becoming as blood. That is, the moon also losing its light, turning red like blood. Pause here for a moment and take a look at the scene with the eye of faith. Sun and moon are changed to dark colors. And dark colors are a foreboding of something ominous that's coming on the horizon. That's what is seen thus far in these three signs. And then we have the stars, fourthly. What shall we do with these stars, which some say is impossible for them to fall through the sky on the earth because these stars are all larger than the earth? What shall we do with the, with the stars? Well, let's understand that stars, in the most broadest sense, are luminous bodies in the sky other than the sun. So that even today, we talk of, about shooting stars when we are referring to meteors. The point here is that these stars could simply be meteors or comets 
which are come upon the earth. And really, I'm no scientist, but who is to rule out that a fragment of a star could be coming our way upon the earth on this great day of wrath and then land on the earth? We don't know. What we do know is the description that the Apostle John gives to the falling stars in verse 13. And that reads, The stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree cast her for untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Picture now with me a fig tree with winter figs. That is, figs that never ripened and can so easily fall to the ground. And then now a great wind comes along, blowing these figs, these figs that never ripened, so that we see a shower of figs falling in one direction. That's what John sees in his vision. And we may be certain that that's what mankind will see on that great day of wrath with regard to the stars falling from the sky. Then there's the fifth sign. The fifth sign where we are told the heavens will appear to be rolled together like a scroll. Now, this sign is nothing new. It is foretold by the prophet Isaiah way back in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, we read, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. And that shake-up seen in heaven above will also be seen and experienced on the earth with every mountain and every island moved out of their places, literally. What terrible signs these are! Take a step back and recount all these signs all together. That great earthquake, the sun and moon turning dark, the stars falling out from orbit from the sky and crashing on the earth and burning, the heavens rolled back like a scroll, and the islands and mountains being moved out of their original place. What terrible, terrible signs! What do they teach us? Three things tonight. And in the first place, they all point to the fact that out of this world as we know it, today, out of this world will come forth the new heavens and the new earth. For the scriptures liken the arrival of the new heavens and new earth through the great shake-up of Mother Earth, captured by all these signs, unto a, a mother 
who is deep into her pregnancy, experiencing great labor pains, convulsing in pain, about to give birth to a child. These signs then, in this way, unique way, all point to the return of Jesus Christ in judgment. It is He who will usher in the new heavens and new earth, which will not be temporal, but everlasting. That, first of all. Second, and in so doing, they teach us that all that is off this earth, including the most seemingly permanent things, are but temporal. All things, all things on the earth are not permanent and everlasting, but only temporary. The heavens, the skies, the seas, the mountains, the islands of the earth, they are not permanent. They seem to be permanent. We take them to be permanent. We take for granted that these things will be there when we wake up the next morning, but they are not permanent and they are not everlasting. And neither is man's wealth, man's name, our wealth, our name, our possessions, our family, our reputation. None of these things are permanent and everlasting, but only temporal. That's second. And therefore third, they teach us to have the right attitude towards the things of this earth. What's the right attitude? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above the permanent things, the everlasting things, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. The great day of wrath, the wrath of God in Jesus Christ will come. And when it comes, it will destroy this earth and all things that are in it as we know it, all our possessions, all and everything. That being the case, I ask you, dear congregation, what is your heart and what are your affections set on? this evening? Are we finding security in permanent, so-called seemingly permanent, earthly things? Do you set your heart and affections on the things of this earth? Know that these things are not going to last. And if the Lord tarries in His coming, know too that we can't bring them along with us when we die. And know that all these things, 
including the great day of his wrath and their terrible signs, just like the running of the four horses. Everything that is loosed in the visions in Revelation chapter 6, all things come under the control of the exalted Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And that exalted Christ controls and executes all things according to His Father's decree. He sends these terrible signs into the earth to accomplish Father's purposes. And ultimately, the one purpose of God is the, His own glory through His Son and the perfecting of His covenant and salvation, the completion of God's everlasting kingdom of righteousness with all its citizens completely gathered, defended, preserved, glorified, soul and body. For life, not here on this earth, but in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the goal of God, the purpose of God. Beloved congregation, is your life aligned with the purpose of God? He will come again, and He will come again through those terrible signs to usher in the new heavens and the new earth in just judgment of sinful mankind and therefore in great and terrible wrath. When all things of this earth which seem so permanent begin to be shaken and pass away, they give to us a picture, a clear picture of the wrath of God. A wrath that is in the form of this great universal shaking. Now, what can we say about this great universal shaking that's recorded in the text? Three things. And in the first place, this great universal shake-up of the heavens and the earth has been foretold many times already back in the Old Testament. Call your attention to three Old Testament references, prophecies to this shaking. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 19, reads as follows, For in my jealousy and in the day of my wrath have I spoken, this is Jehovah speaking, surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. It's not only Ezekiel, but also the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, as God spoke powerfully through him in chapter 13, verse 13. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. 
so that by the time we get to very close to the end of the Old Testament, there is a further revelation of a new and important concept that comes forth with regard to this great shake-up and shaking of the heavens and the earth. The book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we read, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and now notice, and the desire of all nations shall come. That's the new element that comes forth in the revelation and prophecy of this great shaking. This great shake-up of the whole universe is God's way for the desire of all nations. Yesu, Jesus, coming again. That first. And then secondly, we have the fact of God doing this, performing this mighty shaking and shake-up of all of of heaven and earth. That fact tells us that the very things that are shook up and removed are not permanent and really of no lasting value at all. And that's easy for us to understand Our children readily understand this. Children, when you go to the sink and you want to wash your hands, you you shake your hands at the sink and you have the water wash off all the stuff stuff that's on your hands that are not permanent and not only not permanent but also not wanted at all by you. That's the dirt and the grime and the yucky stuff. These things are of no value to you. Well, God is the one doing the shaking here so that the things that are being shaken and removed are not only non-permanent, but are of no lasting value. That's second. And then third, the idea the idea of this great universal shake-up and shaking is that of judgment. The judgment of God through the voice of His very own Son, the Lamb of God, upon all of mankind. That shaking and trembling is the voice of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it is the last preliminary judgment leading into that great final judgment which he himself will conduct. A couple of things about this judgment. First of all, there's an evaluation. Evaluation of what is by the righteous God himself, of of what is righteous, right, true, and precious over against what is wrong and false, and of no value. That's the evaluation by God Himself. And secondly, from there, there's the verdict. 
the verdict by which the divine judge himself will send some persons to heaven and others to hell. That's what this great shaking of the universe speaks of in the text. It speaks of God's judgment over against the sins of all mankind leading into and ushering in that great final judgment by the exalted judge, Jesus Christ himself. Are you ready and am I ready for this great day of wrath? When the heavens and when the earth are shaken, that will announce the great day of wrath. That day is come, so cried John in his vision as he beheld it. And when it is come, who shall be able to stand? That rhetorical question strikes fear in the hearts of man. Sinful, impenitent man. So terrible will be the wrath of the Lamb of God that all these terrible signs amounting to the great unimaginable shake-up of the universe will come to pass. A shake-up and shaking that will give way to fearful judgment and wrath from the Lamb of God. It's fearful. It's terrifying. And so we ask the question, why? Why must it be so fearful? Why must it be so terrifying? And the answer to that is, why not? To get to that answer, let's recall the context of the text. The context of these verses goes back to verses 9 through 11 and the cry of the souls under the altar. These verses of our text are the answer of God to the cry of those saints under the altar, slain on account for the word of God. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Why were they crying with such longing for the judgment and justice of God? Because they suffered unjust persecution, and unjust persecution to the extreme death. martyrdom at the hands of the unbelieving, ungodly world of mankind. And who are they? They're Christians. That's who they are. They're children of the living God. In other words, 
They are those who bear the name of God. And we all know, as Reformed believers, what we confess with regard to the sin against the third commandment. There's no sin more provoking to God than the taking of His name in vain. And here we have the crudest and cruelest form of taking His name in vain, killing these Christians, these children of the living God. For what? For their loving warning of the judgment for sins that is to come and for their need for the blood of the Lamb to cover them and their sins. By killing them, these people trample underfoot the very name of God and do so in a most cruel, wicked way. That's why the terrifying, fearful wrath of the Lamb. God hears their prayer. God hears their cry. And in answer to them, He himself tells them that the very gospel warning that they sounded out in love to mankind throughout their lives will be executed upon the very ones who slayed them. Thereby satisfying the judgment and justice of God. That day is coming. And when it comes, when that day arrives, the ungodly world all around us of mankind will know that they deserve what follows. This knowledge that they deserve, the terrifying wrath of the Lamb, is seen by the lack of any kind of objection on their part in the text when the Lamb arrives, as we see it in verse 16. There is no remorse. There's no cry for mercy on the part of the ungodly for what they did to believers. Not at all. They know that they are guilty. They know that they deserve what's coming their way. And they know what's coming their way from all these terrifying signs which they behold before them. This wrath of God in Jesus Christ, therefore, is in this way proved to be perfectly righteous and just, perfectly holy. And there is no vindictive hatred on the part of these saints in their cry in verse 10. There's nothing out of hand with their cry. Their attitude in that cry is to leave the matter to God and not be vindictive and seek personal vengeance. And God hears their cry. He answers their prayer with this great day of His terrifying wrath, which is coming 
and will indeed come. And when that day comes, what will our response be? Will it be like the fearful, terrifying cry of the wicked recorded in verse 16, saying to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The impenitent wicked will be filled with consternation on that day. All of them. Notice all classes of men are captured in the description in verse 15. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, and then now also the, the commoners now, the bondmen, the slave, as well as every free man who's not a king, who's not great, who's not rich, who's not a chief captain, every bondman, every free man, everyone hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. It doesn't matter what class they belong to, none of them will be shielded in that day from the terror of facing the Lamb. Why such terror? Moments ago we said because they they know deep down in their hearts that they are guilty. They know deep down in their hearts what is going to follow next. They know. And so what do they do? Foolishly, they try to hide in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. But you see, beloved, there is no place to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And so remaining hardened in their impenitence, hardening is the most frightening thing, remaining hardened in their sins and impenitence, they call on the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them to crush them and to kill them. They'd rather have that than to face the wrath of the Lamb. They are in absolute dread and terror of the Lamb. That's them. What about us? Will you and will I say and do the same thing? Beloved, for you who believe in Jesus Christ, there is no reason to be fearful. None at all. For understand that no mere rocks and crushing heavy objects have fallen upon our Savior upon the cross, but the infinite killing Wrath of God for our sins have fallen upon Him. And He was not crushed. 
He is risen. He who loves you and died for you is risen, is ascended, is now sitting at God's right hand, and is the very one who will return on that great day of wrath for us. So there is no fear, but only joy for the saints of God. Finally, we say, that day is come. The day of perfection, the day of glorification is come. There is no fear, but only joy for us. But for all who put not their trust in Jesus, that will indeed truly be a fearful day. Do you fear the wrath of the Lamb? If you fear that that day because of your sins, then I say, turn from them. Don't call upon the rocks to fall on you. And don't hide in caves and dens, but hide beneath the cross of Jesus. For in Him and Him alone will we stand. So put your trust in Him. Live in Him. Look for Him in ardent longing and hope. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Father in heaven, bless this word, word which paints the most frightening day that is to come yet, but it's not frightening for us because of the wonderful love and mercy, thy wonderful love and mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. Cause us therefore to live soberly as before thy face, knowing that this day is coming and will indeed arrive. Grant us grace for all these things. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.